Uh, yes, I'm from Northern Ireland. Uh, I'm married to a Scot. Uh, we have an English son and an Irish dog. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's that out of the way. I, um, I've uh, been in ministry now for far too many years, uh, but became a Christian when I was 17. And um, people like to know how I became a Christian. It's always interesting sure sometimes. So my father was a serving officer with the uh, Royal Air Force. Um, Back in the 60s, uh, we were repatriated, we traveled a lot, but uh, as things in Ireland became very difficult, uh, Northern Irish officers were repatriated. We came back to Ireland on the 10th of July, 1969, and the war started two days later. It had nothing to do with me, <laughs> but uh, I found myself in a really combative environment. My father was away on restricted uh, missions. We didn't really know where he was very often. Uh, teenage years are always difficult. I think I saw the great contradictions of all that is Ireland between supposed people of faith then fighting in the streets and all of the violence. And then one day in a little town called Antrim, which is at the centre of County Antrim, which is on the Loch Shore, um, I was walking along the street and this gentleman approached me and said, God has got a wonderful plan for your life. Have you heard that line? Uh, we had quite a, an interesting conversation, but something happened inside my mind, and certainly something happened inside my soul. And I, as I walked home that afternoon, a whole series of issues played out in my mind, but it seemed that something profoundly spiritual. I didn't know that type of language then, but no one instructed me, but I found myself in need of going to my bedroom. I knelt down beside my bed. I have no idea who taught me how to do that. I prayed a prayer which said, if God, if you're there, then I need you. And life cannot get any more challenging than it currently is. And if you can make sense of this and help me make sense of this, I gladly yield before you I, I'm messed up, I'm confused, uh, people tell me I'm a sinner, if that's the way that I am, that's the way that I am, but please take me the way that I am and do something with this surrendered life. And I was 17. A couple of days later, I went back to our family church, uh, St. Aidan's in the little village of Glenavy where I was born, so that's very exotic in its uh, environment. There are seven public houses, uh, five churches, a war memorial, and a pigeon loft. That was the exotic <laughs> nature of the community. Somebody's got to come from Glenavy. I did. I, uh, I stood in front of the altar, just like this one. I don't know who instructed me, but I opened my hands, and I stood before the altar, and I prayed the most dangerous prayer that any human being can pray, which is, Hear my Lord please use me. I think the Holy Spirit taught me those words. I have no idea where they came from. Um, last month, I was with the president of Lebanon. Um, I, I meet politicians regularly. I'm scattered across the four corners of the world as an emissary for the persecuted church. I could never have known that. You know, how is that? I mean, it's got to be God, hasn't it? You know, um, a tiny nondescript village like that, and then for God to have put his hand on this very fragile life, which remains fragile, I would have to say. Um, so, so tell us, Eddie, um, you know, when I first knew you, you worked with Youth for Christ, yep. and you, you served with Youth for Christ for many, many years. Yep. How did you end up being involved with the persecuted church? Now, there's a good question. Um, Twenty years is a long time. 
And um, I had the huge privilege of meeting people like you and, um, and to watch God work. But I do think there are seasons of life, aren't there? And um, the real story is that I, I uh, was diagnosed with cancer and I had to go into hospital. Um, my son was four. It was a deeply challenging time. Um, I would describe it as a dark night of the soul. I, I found it deeply perplexing, uh, painful, uh, provocative, um, but yet in the contradiction of the darkness, I would have to say that I knew that God was with me. He was my shepherd. And uh, I had a word that came to become stronger and stronger and stronger that I'm going to write a new chapter in your life. And as I emerged out of uh, convalescence, I went to see the chairman of my board and I said, I think that my ministry is in uh, transition. Would you pray and watch over me? And then I was approached by the board of a ministry called Release International that um, has something to do with the persecuted church. It was founded by Richard Wormbrand, the Romanian pastor, and they wanted a new CEO. And for some inexplicable reason, they wanted me to apply. Um, it seemed good to Christine and I as we prayed and fasted over it. It was consistent with maybe a new chapter. And the selection process was painfully rigorous and a very highly qualified group of candidates. For some reason, the board put their hand on me. And for the next six years, I traveled the world learning the reality of the persecuted church. And then six years later, um, a ministry called Open Doors phoned from Holland and said they needed a new chief executive. Um, and that took up a further 10 years of my life. And uh, in this exalted position of president, which my wife says I glow in the dark at night, which is good, and uh, I'm married to the first lady. I'm doing other things. But, you know, life goes through different phases. I don't know which phase that you're in, uh, but the one thing that I do know is that the author, the one who heard that prayer right at the very beginning, here my Lord use me, is still in the business of um, doing stuff. Fantastic. And we've got that Open Doors logo up behind us. Tell us what Open Doors stands for, just in a few sentences. Okay. Let's just do a little kind of audit here. How many of you have read the book God Smuggler? Okay, that's about 40, 50% of you. Well, the founder of our ministry is a Dutchman, uh, Brother Andrew, who smuggled Bibles in a Volkswagen Beetle into Poland and Czechoslovakia during the Cold Year era. Uh, where the persecuted church was literally unknown as far as the global church was concerned. And um, he kept finding Christians who needed support and encouragement. And uh, so now, today, Open Doors around the world is operating in over 60 nations supporting today's persecuted church, of which there are somewhere between one and 300 million Christians so we would smuggle 3.5 million Bibles today. We would train a quarter of a million pastors in how to stand in the midst of the severity of persecution. We would help Christians that have been excommunicated from their uh, initial faith to Christianity who have lost all support to start businesses. We would support Christians in court and we would stand before government advocating uh, for religious freedom for Christians living in places like North Korea 
where the church is uh, under a severe challenge in these days. Great. Well, we're really looking forward to hearing what you've got to uh, say to us. It's great to have you with us. And a big thank you too to Anne and Travers and to Mary Massey, who are our mission champions for Open Doors and, mm. and keep us aware of what's going on with uh, the work of Open Doors yeah. across the world. They're my heroes. Mm-hmm. Good work. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, it's over to you, actually. Now. Is it? Yeah. Oh. So do you, want, do you want the video first, or do you want to... Uh... Uh, I, I think I'll just talk, if okay. I may. If you can He's cope with that. talking, so yeah. listen. Enjoy. Uh, would you stand with me, please? Uh, may I have a glass of water? Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. I hope that you know that preachers are human beings. Do you know that? And we bleed when we're kind of pierced. And we are human. And I had this little moment just sitting here. Uh, lecterns are a problem for me. Have you noticed? <laughs> and I remembered a moment in St. Paul's Church in Raipur in northern India. There you are in the balcony. Nice to see you. And... Um, uh, yeah. your prayer was in a prophetic sense because I have preached in cathedrals and big churches and uh, cow sheds and roof spaces and I approached the lectern at the front and the lectern was six feet tall it was like this and there was a wonderful priest at the front and as I approached it he whispered in my ears and uh, he said please would you take your shoes off And I said, but of course, just explain. And he said, you're about to preach the holy word of Almighty God. Please take your shoes off as a sign of respect. I want you to know this morning that I have got my shoes on, uh, but I really have them off. Because it is an intimidating and awesome thing for a human being to speak the words of God. And in a sense, I'd like to invite you to enter into that empathy with me, and please don't take your shoes off, but please take your shoes off, because I believe that there is something on my heart that I'd like to share with you this morning that I hope will be helpful and and be inspirational as I take your hand in mine and introduce you to your persecuted family around the world. Sometimes I find it helpful to invite congregations to take their hand and place it over their heart. Uh, as a sign of submission to say, this morning I want to hear your voice, Father. Bypass that communicator at the front and speak just to me. You will have many issues that you bring to this place of worship this morning, but my testimony and my journey is proof positive that there's no situation that you face that God does not want to be with you in it, and that he is your provider, and he is the lover of your soul, whether or not you can expect that or not, he loves you. He is for you. And so maybe through some of the things that God will give to me today, that will feed your soul and help you today. So if you would bow your head in prayer, let me pray and ask God to be here as he already is. Lord, it is uh, an amazing privilege to be here with your people this morning. And uh, we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world today that share our faith but not our freedom. 
I pray this morning expressly for the work of your Holy Spirit to take these stammering words of a human being and infuse them with your manifest presence and that you would apply these words and thoughts to my heart and our hearts today and that you would be a God of wonders, a God of miracles today, that you would come into this place and you would speak to us and that you would feed us and that you would heal us and that you would help us and that you would make us one. Because I pray this prayer in the name of our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Do be seated. Now, Paul, help me. Should I have a a clicker? Johnny. So where is Johnny? Johnny, you're there. Johnny, please keep an eye on me. And uh, when I do that, you change the slide, okay? Just so that we get the choreography uh, sorted out. So let me explode a theological misconception right at the very beginning. Many people say that there is a persecuted church and a free church. Have you heard that rhetoric? That is theologically inept and inaccurate. There is only one church. Could we interact with each other for a moment? So would you kind of just let me know that you're there, that the lights are on, that there's somebody (laughs) at home in Christ Church this morning? There is only one church. Now, that's too exciting. Okay, just (laughs) tone it down a little bit. I can only expect a little bit of uh, kind of coming and going. But the sense is that if there is only one church, then that requires some kind of sense of uh, a level of engagement. So in the book of Corinthians, it would say that when one part of the body hurts, finish the rest of the sentence with me. So let's try that one more time. Okay, I will say it and you will follow it lucidly. Okay, when one part of the body hurts, so the whole body hurts. So that means then that there's a prerequisite for us. Being part of this one church to become literate and intelligent about the issues that are impacting the church globally. Second thing that I want to say is that Engagement with the persecuted church is not a philanthropic interest. It is a biblical imperative. It is, of course, the concern of every human being that all human beings, as far as the UN Declaration of Human Rights is concerned, has the right to be able to worship the God of their heart without impedance. But there is something mysterious. You know, I've been a Christian now for 50 years, And God seems more mysterious to me today than he does that when I started this journey. It was so simple when I began. But in that mystery, in that misunderstanding or lack of knowledge of predicting or understanding fully what he's doing, it seems that indisputably the Bible points towards this fact that if you seek to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. So the persecution of Christians isn't abnormal. It's the absence of the persecution of Christians that is abnormal. So the persecution of Christians is not abnormal. It's the absence of the persecution of Christians that is abnormal. Let me try another form of interaction with you. Do you love this book? Right, I could cope with a little bit more enthusiasm on that particular issue. Do you love this book? Yes. So, 
774,747 words in this book. 66 individual books within the master cover, written by 40 authors over a landscape of 1,500 years, which communicates one serious meta-theme to us as those who seek to be people of the book. That meta-theme is this, that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. In the battle of life, if you embrace this word, you will never walk alone. You will never be ashamed. That even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your Savior will always be with you. Do you find that in any way inspirational? this morning. The New Testament was written by persecuted Christians for persecuted Christians in the context of persecution. So today's persecuted Christians look to the whole breadth of the panoply of God's revelation, but in the New Testament they find their identity For them, the normalcy of the challenge of faith that is captured in the New Testament particularly is their norm. It might not be our norm, but if you fail to read the New Testament through those lenses, that this is an understanding of what the struggle of faith is normally all about, and that in the midst of the fire and the persecution and the struggle and the mystery of God, there is enough here to be your divine satanav, to help you orientate, and to live, and to function, and even more amazingly, to flourish in the midst of the struggle. You know, if I was in the black church now, we would be having a party, as I said that. But, you know, as people of the Bible, there is something significant that has got to happen in us uh, to inspire us to help us journey forward. So, Johnny, let's uh, begin with this. I find this, I phoned six church leaders and said, is it okay for me to show this image in UK churches? Would it offend anybody? I hope it hasn't offended you. Because there's something amazing, listen to me for a minute, there's something amazing about Almighty God presencing himself in a human embryo and entering into the body of a virgin and being born in all the vulnerability of humanity for God to say to this world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When you talk to a Muslim who has converted to faith in Christ, they can't get over this image that God would become human and bind himself in human flesh and that you have the ability to call him Abba and you have the assurance of salvation that you are loved by a compassionate, merciful God who loves you every tick of the heartbeat of your life. And that's why they're bursting. Next slide, Johnny. To shine. And this message that I brought to you this morning, I hope is an encouragement. Next, next slide. 
and again. So I want to use image. You know, sometimes people tell me that uh, it's easier to remember pictures than my Irish eloquence. So we'll try and fuse the two together and make this a memorable moment or two together. But can anybody tell me where the top left-hand corner is? Thank you so much. Would you say that one more time? Beautiful. Are you French? No. Well, excellent accent. Yeah. If anything epitomized, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, the New Testament is the old bit, or the new bit at the back of the book, by the way. I'll be talking in a moment about what it means to be a light on a hill. Uh, incredible metaphor. And then I'm going to introduce you to three persecuted Christians. Um, and that's the kind of framework for today's talk. So next um, image, please. So this is Mont Saint-Michel. It looks exquisite during the day. I love French architecture. I love French food. I love French people. I love the whole experience of all is French. You can tell I like food. So I s- but this is Mont Saint-Michel at nighttime. Is it not magnificent? How could you not see that as beautiful? It is a standout reality. Let's just read uh, the scriptures for a second as I engage with you. But I'd I'd like to kind of approach it in a slightly different way and contextualize it by... uh, Hold your Bible up if you've got one. Or if you're using your app, may the Lord have mercy on you. Matthew 5, verse 3. In the translation that you're holding, there are 74 words of a subversive speech that Jesus gave. I'm going to read it from the Peterson, interesting translation. Not this one, but Eugene Peterson and the message. Verse 3. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourself blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens, even cheer, even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. 
and know that you are in good company because my prophets and witnesses have also gotten into this kind of trouble. Now to the context that I've just been speaking about figuratively through these pictures. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. And if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your youthfulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you here on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up to God, this generous Father in heaven. We're going to go now to Indonesia. Next slide, Johnny. And um, before we go there, these powerful verses. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling place among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Next slide. And the verse that I've just been reading. You are the light of the world. Next slide, please. Now, we are Anglican, aren't we? So we're going to practice a little bit of liturgy together. Can you cope with this? We're going to go quite quickly through the rest of this presentation, but it will stop with each story. And I'm going to say to you, we are a city on a hill, and you are going to say... That's very Anglican. That's very good. I'm very pleased with you. Right. Next slide, please. I will use humor to engage you, but please don't think I'm demeaning the very serious thing that I'm coming to talk to you here about today. Next slide. And so I want to take you to prison with me. I was sent with a team of legal advocates to Indonesia some years ago to visit three Sunday school teachers that had been put in prison for the Christianization of children. There were three mothers, a general practitioner and two of her best friends that had started a Happy Tuesday club for the children of uh, street vagrants and prostitutes. And because they were professional people in the community, they understood due legal process So they had letters of authorization from the parents and from the health authorities and the education authorities. It became a show trial. Next slide. And so in this remarkable federation of nations, which is one of the most populous Muslim nations, next slide, these three ladies were put in prison for five years. They had nine children between them. Here they are in the reception area of Indramayo State Penitentiary, Rebecca, Etty, and Ratna. They were put in prison block Juanita. That's an exclusion unit for women, and they were put alongside Al-Qaeda terrorist drug smugglers. There was one woman that if you gave her $15, she would murder anybody. And these three women were put into prison. Next slide. 
It was an amazing experience for me. It was the first time that I'd led a team into that combative environment. As we walked to the front door of the penitentiary, it was about a mile walk, people coming towards us spat at us because they knew who we are. It was a very conflicted community, and this had been a show trial. It was a monstrous situation where on the day of the verdict, the judges came out of their front doors and there was a coffin at their front door with their name, address, telephone number, the names of their wives and their private telephone numbers and the names and the date of birth of their children. That was meant to intimidate them. Are you understanding with me what's happening? And so here they are in prison block Juanita. When they went into the prison unit itself, the walls were covered with excrement. The floor was running with urine. When prison officers went in there, they went in in fours in full body armor. It was a very violent situation. And they put three Sunday school teachers in there. Next slide. Rebecca was the leader of this small church, 30 members. They had read Matthew chapter 5. And that was the inspiration for the Happy Tuesday Club. They were wanting to shine for Jesus. And Rebecca, you know, I love traveling in the Far East. I'm a tall man in the Far East. And <laughs> Rebecca is about this size. She's diminutive, lovely, wonderful, intelligent lady. And her two friends were just the same. And... Uh, she said, when we came into the prison cell, it seemed as though Matthew 5, the Lord was almost shouting it over us. And so we asked for hot water and disinfectant, and we cleaned the cells of the other prisoners before our own. And then we gave them our rations, because in Indonesia you don't get fed. Your family have got to feed you on a regular basis. And so we made them food, and we told them that we loved Jesus. And we just cared for them. And at the end of the third week, a prison guard came to Rebecca and he said, you're a doctor, aren't you? And she said, no, I've lost my practice certificate. I'm now a criminal. He said, I've got a severe abdominal pain. Could you please give me some advice? And she said, well, I'm no longer a doctor, but here's the name of some medication. Go to a pharmacy and they will help you. At the end of the third month in Indramayo State Penitentiary, Rebecca was given a private room and she treated all of the prison staff and their wives and children. I wonder would you do that if you'd have been thrown away into a penal institution? When I met Rebecca, we went for a walk and she gave me a quick medical and she said, Brother Eddie, it's time you lost two stones in weight and no salt and no sugar and behave yourself. Uh, I said, thank you, dear sister. I will bear that in mind. And then she looked up at me and she said, do you know Proverbs chapter 3, Brother Eddie, verses 5 and 6? Do you know Proverbs chapter 3? Turn to your Bibles. <coughs> Let me guide you. We can say this together if it would be helpful. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, 
and he will direct your paths. She said to me, Brother Eddie, this is my university of trust. This is my university of trust. With every beat of my heart, I've got to trust the Lord. I've got to trust that my husband will stay faithful. My children are ashamed of me because I'm now a criminal. I pray that they won't leave me, that they won't forsake me, that they will still honor and love me as their mother. Some people try to airbrush persecution as being pretty and nice and Walt Disney, but it is not. It is destructive and it is brutal. And she said, please would you pray for me in my university of trust for all of those matters, and please would you promise to keep on praying for me. Johnny, we're going to go quickly through three or four slides, and I will instruct you. So here they are in the visitor center. It's 43 degrees. There's 2,700 letters there from people just like you that cared for their family enough to write them a letter and say, you're not forgotten. And many of them are from school children because they loved Sunday school. And three weeks later, after I came back from Indonesia, I was speaking in Sheffield, and there's a card at the front, and a woman got up and screamed, and she said, I sent that card. It's a beautiful thought, you know, of reaching out and saying, You're special. Next card. I was invited to speak at the church, and you say, how come? Well, at the end of the third month, the prison superintendent invited three of them into his office and said, you've been a blessing to this prison. I was told that you were subversives, and so we were going to break your mind, and we were going to break your spirit, but you've been a blessing. How would it be if your church comes to prison, and we protect you, and you can worship your God without fear of intimidation or threat? Is that not amazing? That is a city on a hill shining brightly, the God flavors coming out counter to all that is rational and common sense so that the light of Christ would come. Let's move forward quickly. This is her identification paper, Rebecca's paper. Next. There's the verse that I've tried to encourage you in and to hide in your heart. Next verse. And this is the day that they were set free two and a half years into their term instead of five years because people like you wrote to the president and pleaded for their freedom. Is that not amazing? Because this is what it means to be family rather than passive, disengaged people. On the Monday, they went back to prison to disciple the 47 people that they'd led to Jesus. How irrational is that? We are a city on a hill. Next slide. We've time for one more story. I want you to know that I'm watching the clock. I went to Pakistan. It's 12 o'clock at night. It was the end of seven days. I'd interviewed 179 Christians that had been persecuted for their faith. And as the day came to an end, it was about 11 o'clock at night, my minder came to me and said, there's two evangelists that have driven 14 hours on buses that have come to meet you to ask you to pray for them. They are 86 years of age and 85 years of age, respectively, respectively. 
and they're operating as evangelists in a Muslim uh, community, and they'd just love to meet you. Well, how could you say no? We're sitting on the floor drinking chai late at night, and they told me their story. Next slide. Pakistan is number six on the world watch list. Next slide. That is not the real picture, but it looks remarkably close to it. So they said to me, um, let me tell you our story. Next slide. Every Wednesday, we go to our local market. Next slide. And uh, we have an orange box. Please put your hand up and tell me if you know what an orange box is. Okay, it is indeed a wooden box in which you put oranges. It's not a political statement. And um, I lift him up onto the orange box, and he plays his three favorite hymns. This is 21st century evangelism in Pakistan. Then I lift him down, and he lifts me up. And I tell the story of the night that I had a dream of a man in white who appeared to me in the dream and told me that his name was Jesus. And he told me that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And that if I would put my trust in him, I would never be ashamed. He had the most beautiful face that I had ever seen. And immediately I fell down on my knees and asked him to be my Lord and my Savior. So she said, Brother Eddie, I tell this story and I invite people to follow the Jesus that appeared to me in a dream and I give out Bibles. I think that's very beautiful 21st century evangelism. But it's a very challenging environment. But they so loved Jesus, they couldn't do anything else. And they'd read Matthew 5 and they wanted to find a way to shine. So that's how they were shining. Each of you can shine in your own unique way. And then she said, one day, A few weeks ago, these men with black beards appeared in the crowd, and they were very angry with us. And more than that, they followed us home. And when the sun set, I peeked out the window, and there was a hundred of them outside our home. And in the midst of the darkness, our door was kicked in, and a group of men came in, and they knocked my husband unconscious. And one appeared out of the mass with a black balaclava on and a huge stick in his hand. And he raised it above his head as four of them held me on the ground. And he shouted, Allah Wakbar. And he brought the club down on my head. And two inches before it touched me, an invisible hand stopped him. And the manifest glory of God invaded our little room. And the assailants were pushed to the floor. And they screamed out in terror. And they scrambled out of the house into the darkness. And we've never seen them again. But there is a pertinent question, my dear brothers and sisters, that I asked them. I said, what did you do the next Wednesday? Because that's the determinative question, isn't it? And she said, we went back to the market with our orange box. And he lifted me up onto the box. And I told my testimony. And I lifted him up onto the box. And he played his three favorite hymns. And the next slide was, if God is for us, Who can be against us? We need the persecuted church to teach us how to read our Bibles. We need them to inspire us to pray with faith and to be obedient. Next slide. We...
Shall we stand together? This morning, I humbly, as an emissary of the persecuted church, invite you to welcome the persecuted church into your heart and your life and your conscious mind, not as a philanthropic interest, but as a biblical imperative that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. Today, the church in North Korea needs you, 70,000 of them in prison in gulag situations, but there are 300,000 Christians living and shining for Christ, and they would never be in a place like this. Somalia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Nigeria will provide you with some resources, Miri and others will provide you with resources to make this message a part of your life and the rhythm of your life. For just a moment, close your eyes and bow your head in prayer and think about that one issue. Whether that's something that you can respond to positively this morning. And then finally, those powerful words from the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That applied powerfully across the face of the earth in Indonesia. And I know that each one of us here in this place, in this moment, need to embrace that truth too. So there may be an issue that you're wrestling with right now. And I invite you just to hold on to that verse and ask the Lord to guide you where you are. And so, Father, now in this holy moment, in this place, which is set apart for your worship, I pray your blessing on my brothers and sisters here. I pray that they might be strengthened in the innermost part of their being. I pray that you would give them understanding about how they can shine for you, how they can be a witness for you in this season of their lives. I thank you for the truth that when you are for us, no one can be against us. So I pray for courage in their journey today and in their journey tomorrow. Thank you for the courage of your persecuted peoples around the world. May they continue to inspire us, and may we have the unique privilege of being able to support them and pray for them as members of our very own precious family. Do something here amongst us this morning, I pray, that will bring that into sharp focus and reality for the great glory of your name. I ask these things. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening.